Hi, my name is Titi Mutendi and you are listening to Enterprising Families Podcast. Welcome to the world of Enterprising Families where we discuss the issues of governance, next gen and looking at how families of wealth and family businesses growing into families of wealth can preserve their wealth, become better as they go forward into a new generation. Hi everyone and welcome to this episode of Enterprising Families and in this episode I have Ian Marsh who is going to be sharing with us about difficult conversations or complex conversations during family governance processes or even in family businesses as we navigate our journeys. Welcome Ian. Hi Susie, thank you for having me, it's great to be here. It's always awesome to have a conversation with you because um why is it so difficult to talk is, is the key to everything and communication mm-hmm. is always the key to everything. I'm going to let you introduce yourself before we jump into talking about these difficult conversations and why it's so difficult to communicate between family members. Okay. I, um, I started my working life as a lawyer looking after uh, enterprising families mostly. Mm-hmm. And I, over time, found myself uh, litigating all manner of uh, family disputes between parents and children, between siblings, between cousins. Um, it was the lawyer. It was, well, I met really interesting people. I did challenging work. I got well paid for it. it that was great, but looking at the client experience, it wasn't really quite so good. And I started looking at whether there were different ways of achieving the same result. And I, I trained as a mediator. When the opportunity came along, I left the law to do that full time. And when I started doing that, I realized quite quickly that most of these conflicts were either constructs, you know, there was just a means of inflicting pain on somebody else in the family, Um, or, you know, there'd been a breakdown of communication, and I, I think the first is an example of the second anyway, and if you could restore communication, people knew how to solve their own problems. I, th- I think most of us know how to solve most of our problems anyway, we just don't realise we do. And I got fascinated by why it was that you know, well-educated, well-meaning people who love one another can't actually talk about the stuff that matters most to them. And I started su- studying some of the science around that. I discovered a subject called interpersonal neurobiology, which gave me a load of light bulb moments. Um, Certainly reading the first book on that, which I did on a flight to Singapore, it was just ding, 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 all all the way to Singapore. Um, And it changed my approach to to a lot of that work. And I've just, since then, I went on to research and write a, a book, which is, if it's so good to talk, why is it so hard? And, <clears throat> really since then my focus has been on those 
other people like to call them difficult conversations. I, I would probably just call them conversations these days because any conversation can be difficult. And that's that's how we come to be here, I guess. Yes, that's how to, we come to be here. Can you take us a little bit deeper into interpersonal neurobiology? What is this and how does it affect us and our ability to talk to each other or understand each other better? Okay, uh, interpersonal neurobiology was developed by a, a group of people, but from my perspective, pioneered by a guy called Dan Siegel, uh, UCLA. And it's a multidisciplinary subject that looks at how our minds, our bodies and our relationships interact to make us who we are. I mean, our, uh, we now know, you know, contrary to most of the science that was around when I was uh, a student even, later than that, we now know that our brains continually rewire throughout our lives. We know that our relationships affect how they rewire. We know, for example, now that um, abuse of children, even in a quite wide definition of abuse, directly impacts their genetic material. And unless that gets repaired somehow, those defects will pass on to, to their children. So we know, and, and I think we've, some people anyway have got past the idea that, you know, the body is measurable, therefore good, and the mind is fuzzy, we don't really know what it is. I think when Siegel started his research, he was looking for an accepted definition of the mind, and there wasn't one. There were about 150 different definitions, depending which discipline you trained in. And he still hasn't brought about universal acceptance of, of, of mind. But, but it all, whether the mind is what the brain does or something else, and you know, if you could, you could run 100 podcasts on that alone, um, who knows? But everything that we experience in life affects how we judge what comes next and that impacts how we how we interact and in your experience looking at family businesses because you've worked with quite a lot of family businesses and family enterprises do you think um concepts like the the born family system which looks back into the different relationships or different experiences past family members have had. Mm -hmm. Do you think that it's relevant in saying that they can be extremely impactful to the current family members or can continue to be impactful as the family grows and in turn, this then impacting their relationships and their relationship with their business? I, I have to say it's, it, it's a system that doesn't resonate with me okay. in, in, its, in its particular detail. Um, but I think, I think it's like 
religion, there are many paths to the one universal place. And I think, I think the reason I, I'm asking. I mean, I know people mm -hmm. who practice in that field, and I know they do really good work, and they probably approach the work differently than I do. Mm -hmm. um, but when you get to the upper level of it, I would say this too in martial arts, which has been one of my things that, you know, there are these huge apparent differences between all these schools of martial arts, but when you mm -hmm. get to the real mastery level, they're all about the same thing. Um, and, and it's not about fighting either. So, mm -hmm. yeah, it's, and I think the same is with a lot of these systems. I absolutely think, you know, the environments we grow up with and the people who care for us, be they our parents or our genetic parents or somebody else, have a, a real effect on what we do when we grow up. Mm -hmm. I don't believe it's set in stone. I believe it can be addressed. Mm -hmm. um, but I think one of the challenges that uh, the families we work with face is that because they... In one of their strengths is that they look inwards and find strength inwards. Mm. But that, that is, like with everything, your greatest strength is probably also your greatest weakness, that mm -hmm. you know, there's sometimes an unwillingness to look outside and, and see new ways of seeing yourself. Mm. Mm -hmm. I, um, I think anything that helps people do that is, is good. Mm -hmm. And then looking at your book, mm -hmm. so good to talk. Why is it so hard? Mm -hmm. I think exactly that. That's the question. If it's so good <laughs> to talk, then why is it so hard? Why, why have you, what has your observation been of why it's so hard to talk? I think it, it shifts over time. But I, I think one of the fundamentals is that our, our genetic evolution and our cultural evolution are move at different speeds and are out of sync with each other. We have, uh, I'm to throw some more signs at you, I, I'm, I'm a big fan of Stephen Porges' polyvagal theory, which I learned as part of interpersonal neurobiology. And that, that's a focus on, well, part, part of it is the fight-flight response. Mm -hmm. And you know, Porges says when our primary mode is to socialize, uh, to tend and befriend, if, if you prefer that term. But when we get tripped out of it, we go into this either fight-flight or freeze-faint freeze, sort of phases. And he, he analysed, amongst other things, what actually happens in your body when that happens. And I found it really astonishing because these all these muscles around your eyes and your face lock up. Um, and these are the muscles we use to transmit almost every emotion other than anger. Anger comes more from around the lips, but you know, all, all, all the good stuff 
is higher up. But not only do we send that way, one of the ways I know what your feeling is that subconsciously I'm doing some manner of mirroring what's going on in your face, and then I experience a physiological response to it. And, mm -hmm. and you get some of that by, you know, you adopt a very sad posture, a very sad expression. I'm guessing you're going to feel sad fairly quickly. I do. Lots, lots of people do. It won't apply to everybody. So that trips out. There's, there's little muscles in your ear mm -hmm. that go facid. And when they're working normally, they're the muscles that allow you to pick out one voice in a crowd. Mm -hmm. And so you can be in this really busy cocktail party and somebody mentions your name the other side of the room and you know, because um, you heard it. Um, and they don't work anymore because when you're in fight flight, it's all about you, not us. So he does a huge amount of work on how is it I keep... How is it we keep feeling safe so that we can communicate? And if I'm having a conversation with you, how is it I make you feel safe so you hear what I'm saying? And it's yeah, a lot of, when I do workshops, I get people come along and say, I think you'll find I have no difficulty getting my point across. And yeah, these may or may not be the heads of family families. Um, and I, I just ask them, have you ever checked? Or do you just leave it out there? You, you broadcast and you assume that everybody's understood exactly what you've said. And actually, if they're sitting there feeling scared, intimidated, too hungry, in pain, itching, all manner of things, yeah. The words probably never went in in the first place, mm. and yeah, I think it behooves us if we really want people to hear what we've got to say, then we have to create a safe space in which to do it. And that's all the more, you know, even in normal times, that's a challenge. I would venture, I would. I don't like generalizations, but I'm guessing everybody is a bit stressed at the moment. Yeah, whether it's worry about a disease, worry, worry about whether you have a job next week, whether it, yeah, this, this pandemic affects so many things. It may just be you have no worry about the disease at all, but nobody's let you outside for six months and you're going slowly nuts. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, everybody's got that little bit less bandwidth at the moment to, to work with. And what do you define as a safe space? And how do we create safe spaces? I, I, I think particularly in the context we're talking about, the space is safe if, if you feel able to say what you have to say. Mm -hmm. It should create an environment where you feel you've been heard at the end of it, where you feel you've been understood. Probably where you feel what you say might make a difference, not, mm. not will, but might. <coughs> um, it needs to be comfortable. Mm -hmm. 
it needs to be not one guy sitting on a big chair behind a table and you sitting on a stool on the other side. You know, it's there needs to be some sort of level field. Mm. Um, I would be wary of the the music, if any, you have in the background. Mm-hmm. A lot of thumping bass triggers a defensive response in a lot of people. Okay. Excuse me. <coughs> Sorry. It's reminiscent of Predator. So we shut down. Breaking bread together is always a good thing to do. Mm. Um, I think the best way to build safe spaces is over time by coming together regularly Mm. for the same purpose with the same people. Mm. Mm -hmm. Ritual helps. Um, Their common purpose helps. Mm. Um, We feel safer when we feel we belong and we're valued. Mm. Mm. And and that's a really difficult one. I mean, expressing, I've known so many entrepreneurial, mostly fathers, but probably the odd mother too, who they're so focused on building the empire that the fathers are maybe not so present when the children are young. And then one of the ways they demonstrate love is by taking their children's problems away from them and solving them, Um, which some of those children will take that as as a demonstration of love, but it doesn't really equip children to make decisions later on when it's their turn to to step up. Mm. And I think another thing we've seen with COVID is I've certainly seen a number of family businesses where the parents needed to shield themselves. So yeah, this was their time to step back Mm. and the next generation had to step up and they had to step up in February or March or April, whenever it was when they were never expecting to do that. Mm -hmm. And that, yeah, that's a, that's another big burden to put on, put on anybody. Um, So ideally you would work at it over time, but but sometimes life doesn't always give you the chance to do that. Mm. And I'm just thinking about um, something you said about physical circumstances when you're Mm -hmm. having conversations. And I'm just curious as in to how much they can really impact how we communicate and how to make it a more even playing field when you're having difficult conversations. So, for example, when you said, if you're going to sit on a big chair behind a big desk and you're going to have, trying to have an intimate conversation with somebody who's sitting on the stool on the other side of the the desk, the desk itself could um, present itself as a a barrier physically and mentally for for both parties. So how important is um, physical circumstance and um, presenting neutral environments when having conversations? 
I think it's 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 hugely important because mm -hmm. I think even if the guy behind the desk is just sitting where he habitually sits, mm -hmm. if the person on the other side sees this as a power imbalance, it's a power imbalance. Mm -hmm. um, and it's going to affect what he says and does. Um, my preference when I was mediating uh, was to get rid of as much furniture as possible. If, if I could have done mediations with everybody standing up, I would have done that. But I'm, I'm not Queen Victoria, so I couldn't quite bring that off. Mm -hmm. But I, I used to adopt the sort of horseshoe of chairs. Mm -hmm. And some people would think it was spooky and weird. But I, I think that you're, you're right, the furniture presents a barrier, but it presents a barrier in both ways it can stop people saying what needs to be said but it my experience was it also gave them permission or some felt it gave them permission to lose their tempers and behave in an aggressive manner because there was this big piece of furniture between them and the other guy so it was safe physically mm -hmm. if you take the desk out of the way and put them in chairs close to each other People don't lose their temper quite as much, quite as often. You do have to be ready to step in between if they do, but <laughs> <coughs> you just have to read these things as they go. And, and honestly, I, I think not having, I mean, whether you have a room full of armchairs or a room full of you know, rented chairs in a hall, um, not having furniture between you and having everybody on a level and in some, I, I would tend to use neutral space if you can find one. And because there'll always be a family member who has the biggest house and that's the most easy place to go. But is that really a neutral space? Even if it's one of the next generation and one of the siblings, mm -hmm. you know, is that the sibling who everybody sees as the parent's favourite and the person who assumes that they're successor, what gets read into that. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, I, I used to do some quite a lot of business in Asia. And I remember the first time I went into a predominantly Chinese meeting. Mm -hmm. I, it was it. Everybody speaks very fluent English. The meeting was in English. I was the only ethnically non-Chinese person in the room. Mm -hmm. And I had gone with a, a colleague who was Chinese. And when we came out, I asked her how she felt the meeting went. And she said, oh, I'll have to spend quite a lot of time about thinking about what wasn't said. Um, because in, in, in that culture, there's lots of message. Some of, sometimes the language is about saving face for everybody concerned mm -hmm. and the real message is in who sits where who speaks who doesn't speak what they're wearing mm -hmm. uh, um, and we all do that to some degree in, in our families there's subjects we can talk about in a, a shorthand that you know the next generation of children starts bringing their boyfriends and girlfriends home and they don't have a clue what's being talked about because it's all some weird sort of shorthand and mm 
Mm-hmm. You think, what, what have I let myself in for? <laughs> um, so we all do it to a degree, but that was a very, very stark example for me and a very, a very good lesson to learn that there is, there's messages in, in everything. And yeah, I, this is stereotypical, but yeah, in the US, the words probably carry a higher percentage of the meaning. Mm-hmm. There will be exceptions to that. In more collectivist societies, Asia being the obvious example, it's a lot more the other way because face, this concept of face, which is very elusive, has more has more meaning, and mm-hmm. every culture has its has its own way of doing, and you need to you need to reflect that in what in what you do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I'm just thinking um, from what you're saying that uh, power imbalances can happen in conversations by mm-hmm. suggestion mm-hmm. and um, nuances that are particular to the way a family or a culture communicate with each other. And how then is it best to empathize or tackle situations where you see that there's a lot that is still left very much unsaid yet it's the real reason for people coming together and having a discussion i I think my my core belief and it needs cultural modulation i guess Mm -hmm. but my core belief is that you need to deal with the emotion first before you get to the substance what most people would regard as the substance Mm -hmm. because feeling heard is good but if i feel that you understand how i'm feeling Mm -hmm. um that that makes a much better connection because that is such a at such a primal level in our bodies that you know the system calms down so i i would always try and address emotion first and one of the interesting things about emotion is that if you if you name the emotion if you name your own emotion it tends to calm down for for most people mm-hmm. it's a good calming down technique it's not to it's not to squash the emotion, but just acknowledging what it is. But also if you do it with somebody else, and if, if somebody's angry, just ac- acknowledging that they're really angry. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, and reflect back in some of what they say to you know, make the point that you've heard it and you've felt, felt the emotion of and, and I think if you're feeling, <clears throat> when you're feeling on the wrong side of the power imbalance, you know, the first thing not to do is is not to make accusations. Mm-hmm. Um, I think sentences that begin with the word "you" probably close people down into a defensive state almost quicker than anything else. Mm-hmm. But if you turn it around and say, "When you do, you realise that when you do this, I feel this," mm-hmm. and if you can add "because." Um, it's very disarming. They can say, well, you shouldn't, but that's pretty 
mean, you feel what you feel and they know that they, most people, if they say something like that, they know that if they were on the other end of the conversation, they would be not, not calmed by that. Um, and that's a really powerful, it's a really powerful tool. And accept that, you know, families are as much emotional connections as they are genetic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, we spend a lot of time with each other. We, in order to make that family community, we very often suppress things. The nature of community is that we all give up something that we'd really like in order to have the benefit of being part of something, something bigger. That's 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 community. Um, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't allow it out occasionally and that have people know and recognize um that that that's the price you're paying for the benefit of this i mean we tend to assume that if everybody is better off and we'll all define that differently um the price is just the price and it's fine but the price is often emotional and you know we all but I certainly experience emotions you know, that I prefer not to experience. I, they crop up when I when it's least convenient for them to crop up, and yeah, they sometimes require a degree of active management. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I work with this stuff, and I find it difficult. Lots of people, yeah, I work with people sometimes who have no idea that they can manage their emotions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, they get angry, they hit somebody. They get sad, they cry. You know, it's and um, I, I can't criticise. That's where their life experience has brought them. But mm-hmm. it doesn't make for an easy family. <laughs> I'm sure it doesn't. I'm sure it doesn't. I think one of the biggest takeaways I've had from this conversation is the fact that when you name your emotion you take the sting out of it or you calm down or the other person calms down when they are able to verbalize what their emotion is. And I think in many conversations, we don't verbalize our emotion. And sometimes we mistake one emotion for another, whereas in we might be hurt and we, it might translate into feeling anger, but the true emotion is I'm hurt. Not that I'm angry. I'm, I'm, I might be angry at myself because I'm hurt, but the true emotion in itself is that I am hurt and I'm hurt by a perceived transgression or a perceived um, action that caused my hurt. And um, voicing it might be the most powerful thing I do for myself and for the communication um, process itself. I, I, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I think you speak, I hurt. Long before I could even get words out, my brain is telling me you intended to hurt me. Mm-hmm. And then another part of my brain, which is there to make sense of the world, will try and weave a story about why you did that. Mm-hmm. Whereas if I say, I feel hurt you will say, you didn't mean to do that, Mm -hmm. to which I may say, well, you would say that, wouldn't you? But 
if, if it, it's a starting point for a conversation and it's it a is. starting point for an understanding of what hurts because what hurts you possibly doesn't hurt me mm-hmm. and lots of families have years possibly decades of learned forms of speech and behavior which some members have probably found hurtful over the years i mean mm. i've i've taken families into mediation who have not all been in the same room for eight nine years mm. and uh, getting all that out in the open is i mean it's not a it's not a pretty process it's sometimes not a pleasant process um, but it's what they need to move forward. Mm-hmm. I mean, the better course would be to do it as you go along, but mm-hmm. yeah, it's it can be a scary place you need to go to. And so many of us just see we all have stereotypes in our minds of our close relatives and we mm-hmm. tend to see them, you know, possibly as the way they were when we all last lived in the same house together. Mm-hmm. And it might be 20 years further on, and most people change in 20 years, and they're not who they were when they were 15, mm-hmm. um, fortunately. Um, but, but we have this notion that, you know, maybe this one's the peacemaker, this one's the argumentative one, this is the one that's going to storm off and do their own thing. Mm-hmm. And that might have been true. Mm. You know, when everybody was a teenager, but it's probably not true now. Because mm. you know, life's not like that. So I, I, I think it's absolutely right. If you, if you can, and I, I think the other part of it is you can have these cascades that you get the emotional response, which, as you say, might be the hurt, and you do get angry with yourself, and then you feel the flush in your face and then you get ashamed that you're showing your anger in public when you shouldn't be. And, you know, it can all, deciphering that, you know, the next day can be really challenging. Mm. Uh, Whereas if you you practice and and learn to acknowledge the first bit, um, there is space there to you create safe spaces within yourself and you start creating safe spaces between you and other people. And if you can do that with enough, in enough twosomes, you end up with a nice safe space in which a whole family can come together and talk about really difficult stuff. Like who's taking over the family business? (laughs) Yes. Like who's taking over the family business, which is always the, the most interesting of conversations in family businesses and families <laughs> of wealth and enterprise. It is. Well, thank you once again, um, Ian, for joining me today on Enterprising Families and helping yeah. us unpack the different feelings, emotions, and nuances that go with communication. It's not just the words that come out, but the setting that we set for the communication itself and the physical reactions that we have to the way we communicate and others communicate with us. Thank you once again, Ian, for sharing with us. It's been a pleasure, thank you.